Hey everybody, as Al Swearingen would say, some shit's best walked through alone, but not podcasting about Deadwood. That's why I am here with you. Clay, how are you? I'm good. I was wondering um, how long you will wait if you haven't crossed this road already of uh, asking your son or refer- saying to your son, that's a guilty, skulking fucking look <laughs> on your feature son anytime he walks into the room. Looking you, less than honest. You, 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 uh, yeah, minus the F word. I think that's something that you could say daily to these kids. That's, that's, that's a skulking, <laughs> a skulking look about them. Although choking them above the bar seems a little bit far, uh, far gone at this point. Maybe when they get older and they tell me to go fuck myself. <laughs> we are here to talk about two headed, that's a two headed beast. This is the something pretty podcast. Clay, have you been? We, I feel like we, um, we haven't recorded Deadwood in two weeks or so it feels like at this point yeah. but we're back into it how have you been uh good i actually uh did not skip the reminder previously on for this i episode didn't i didn't either yeah i needed it i couldn't I exactly remember where we were yeah I, I needed it as well and uh someone actually joined on discord to say where the fuck is the latest episode because they haven't gotten around to it so <laughs> people are listening to the podcast which is nice we got one we got one and i will put the episodes out I, I was going to complain about it at the end of the series, but the the thing that I'll most be happy about finishing this podcast with is the editing of the clips because I mm. despise it. And it oh, it takes, takes so long. It takes a very long time. So I'm glad we're only doing it for a limited run series, and there's only a couple more episodes to go. But it's just it's just something I really despise. But anyway, I I I, I feel like um you can you can see our uh, how long we've been doing this for. If you go back and you kind of listen to the different shows that we've done and see how more and more streamlined the production and presentation yeah. gets over the yep. years, because yep. I feel like we started off with, we got music, we got okay. clips, <laughs> we got specialized uh, images and Get, shit. We got, we, got, we got guests. We got guests. <laughs> we got 300 word write-ups that go in everything. And now yep. it's just like same picture for every clip. <laughs> Same picture for every episode on the thumbnail. Same Me and background. You, no clips. Same music, if we have music at all. I just can't do I can't do excessive uh editing at this point. I I I I'm not I don't have an editor's mind. I don't think I can't do it for video and I can't do it for audio. It just feels like mm. it's just it's something that takes forever to do. But um I couldn't imagine editing like a really high production value podcast. And yeah, my justification is that I don't think it makes too much of a difference, really. Like even if the, the highest produced podcasts were just, you know, a quick intro and then the people talking in it, I really wouldn't mind that. I wouldn't be like, where's all the sound effects and stuff like that. I, I miss all that stuff. The, the one that has always driven me fucking insane. I think it's I think it's Radio Lab. Mm-hmm. Um. It's the one where when they're telling a story, they cut together clips of like 15 different people telling the story and they jump. Oh, they like stack them on top sometimes, of each other. Yeah, sometimes by the word. So it'll be like one person says, I looked up and then the next person will say, and I saw the plane coming from, from the other side of the next person. Down the street, it looked like yeah. it was coming right at us. And I'm like, dude, oh, this yeah. is fucking brutal for me to listen to. <laughs> And absolutely must be brutal for whoever has to put it together. Yeah, it's is. I just I question whether or not it's worth it. But this is a show that needs clips, unfortunately. So I have to put in the clips because we don't do a good enough job of writing down what they actually say. And it's nice to hear them say it too. So, just in case anybody was wondering, I was describing nine eleven. 
<laughs> We're right off the anniversary. It's clearly it's fresh. It's on everybody's mind. Fresh on your mind. Yep. This is a two-headed beast. This is the Something Pretty Podcast, and we are going to take a break. We'll play our little clip of music, and then we're going to come back and play more clips and ourselves talking over it. You're listening to a podcast that is a lie agreed upon. Join Wes and Clay as they discuss HBO's Deadwood and tell you something pretty. This is episode five of season three of Deadwood. It's called A Two-Headed Beast, directed by Daniel Minahan, written by David Milch. In this one, at the bank, Alma guides Merrick towards a positive story about the venture. The Cornish miner Pasco is dumped in the thoroughfare, a knife protruding from his chest. The murder enrages Bullock. Hostetler receives payment for his livery and demands the board on which he can... Uh, that's kind of weirdly written. Hostetler receives payment for his livery, and Steve demands the board on which he confessed horse fucking. Swearingen thinks he understands Hurst's plans, but not his motive. He tells Doherty he can fight Turner. They fight. Turner is killed. Alma takes her evening draft of laudanum. She caresses Ellsworth's head and kisses him. He sees her intoxication and leaves. Hostetler and the nigger general find the board has been erased. Hostetler finds a shotgun and kills himself. Burns asks Swearingen to look in on Doherty. Al says some shit's best walked through alone. Hurst drinks at the Bella Union alone. He tells Bullock to fuck himself. Bullock arrests Hurst and pulls him by the ear through the far- thoroughfare. This is it, a two-headed beast, Clay, which uh, some of the patrons, um, not to, we don't have to get right into it, but they were very anxious to see what you maybe not patrons, what you thought of the Turner fight with Dan Doherty, which is a kind of important moment in the show, something that's remarked upon in the Deadwood Bible. Woody Harrelson says that it's his favorite fight uh, scene of all time, which is just kind of a weird <laughs> a weird reference or a weird name to pop in there with his, his opinion, but it is his opinion. Um, but this is a two-headed beast, and we can either start with the fight or I guess we can go to uh, the stuff that leads to the fight. So my, my take on this episode is that this is the episode that is best described by um, the Tool song Schism because it's all about <laughs> the schism between people and the lack of communication and how they're different from each other. Um, cold silence has a tendency to atrophy any sense of compassion between supposed lovers, which fits most with Ellsworth and Alma. But I think everyone in this, it's Al and Dan can't talk to each other. Alma and Ellsworth can't talk to each other. Alma and Trixie can't talk to each other. Hurst and Turner can't talk to each other about their feelings. Farnham and the Gem Gang don't talk to each other anymore about their feelings. Delivery 2 and Steve can't talk about what they're actually thinking. And Dan and Johnny can't connect about what they're feeling. So that's my take on the episode is that basically the, the theme that they're playing with in this one is that people are unable to communicate directly with each other and it causes a lot of stress, uh, to say the least, between people. Well, I guess that argues for me showing Captain Cunt face how goddamn afraid I am. It wasn't after talk between you and Turner. Hearst was there when Turner said it, and Hearst I asked, did he want it brought back to you? Hearst says to me, I guess so. Guess so don't sound like Hearst. I'd said I guess so before. I think he was making small of me. What is there to consider over Al? That sea creature Turner called me out. It's Hurst calling you out. I'm trying to decipher his reason. Well, me seeing to Turner will not delay your goddamn decipher. Can you shut up now, Dan, that you fucking couldn't before? He hurt you. 
Then he calls you like a dog. I had to tell him to fuck himself. Even as I forbore till I could see to my fucking arrangements. Think they'll get seen too by the snows. Yeah, I I, uh, I really like this one. Um, I I actually wanted to start with Hostetler because I I was very disappointed by that, and I don't mean like disappointed in in um like uh, production bad, choice. Yeah, it was just it was shocking. Man, yeah, fuck that guy, Steve. <laughs> Steve. <laughs> well, he did his thing again. Of he's got, he gets very close to the finish line, and he can't help but fuck everything up. At the, at the I know, end. and it, it's 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 so great because like every single person on the show feels the exact same way as the people watching it, which is the people watching the show, which is just like Steve. For once in your life, shut the fuck up. Yeah, and just take the W and don't fucking complain about it. and so i found it i was just very i was very disappointed that it led to hostility killing himself because yeah. it's on the one hand you know how much shitty racism can one person take in their whole life yeah on the other hand it's like man don't don't let this fucking asshole yeah put you put you over the edge yeah. i don't know i just i was very i found it very very sad yeah it is sad it's um and it is kind of the opposite of what, you know, it's it's coming back to Deadwood's theme about um, perseverance, really, in the face of things. And mm-hmm. that's probably what's most uh, frustrating about it is because Hostetler gives in to um, Steve, not without good reason or anything like that. I think that almost the more frustrating thing is that while people dislike Steve and don't want to put up with him, he's not he's not openly chastised to the level that you'd kind of expect him to be like, mm-hmm. uh, cause, um, why can't I remember the, the guys, the, the, the bartender at number 10 or number, oh, yeah. the, uh, whatever that character's name is. I'll, uh, once my mind is clear, I'll remember, but he goes occasionally against Steve and Steve never really learns his lesson or never really bring, like he never really internalizes what people are saying to him. Uh, in this scene, it's the one where he's washing himself at the wash bin after he gets the the spittoon poured on him, um, and he's kind of being lectured about like he needs to just get his life together and get it on track and just accept the, uh, the th- way the things are going to go and look on the bright side, sort of. And Steve can never do that, and yeah. he just relentlessly brings Hostetler down to this point of, you know, it's mostly frustrating that Hostetler could have just kind of walked away, but it gets it gets yeah. stuck on this board situation that yeah. they can't find the board. And then fittingly, in a nice touch, when they find the board, it's been erased anyway because it never mattered in the first place. You know, they're just right, searching right. for this weird thing because Steve has a, a conspiracy theory that things are going to go wrong for him if someone finds the board. Weirdly, no one asks what is on the board that you want to find right. so yeah. badly. Um, but yeah, that's I know. That's I was it. surprised Bullock was never like, why? Who cares? What is this thing we're looking for? <laughs> and that, yeah. that's, that's what's so frustrating about it to me or so sad, I suppose. This is the board, for Christ's sake. What difference does the rest of it make? I don't know which the actual board. There's no more fucking writing on it. Shall I accept myself as satisfied only for Hostetler once escaped to send the real fucking board back from Cheyenne while he's laughing up his lion sleeve? For Bullock to open the package and humiliate me. Or for the fucking bank woman to humiliate me with the true fucking board. Or to revoke my fucking security on my fucking loan or whatever your fucked up plan is to make me a fucking cunt i will not be called a fucking liar 
I didn't live my life for that. Yeah, fuck you, Steve. We're leaving. Talk stupid to our fucking dust. Yeah, I think it's frustrating, too, because, like, I think everybody knows someone like Steve. Steve is the kind of guy who complains about the world fucking him and does not recognize how many people are actually helping him. Yeah. Yeah. And so just to see him constantly, constantly complain and constantly whine and constantly, you know, just be an asshole and not be at all cognizant of how much help he is actually getting and that the biggest person hurting him is himself is just so fucking frustrating to watch. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say again, I think I, I love, uh, I think the actor's name is Michael Haney. I think I love his performances, Steve. I really, I've really yeah, come to really like good. the character of Steve in terms of being a character on the show this season. Um, is maybe because I've seen him a lot before this and I, he, he becomes maybe less irritating the more that you see him because you know what's coming with him. But I think the his performance and his writing is really terrific, I think. He's got a great energy for, yeah. for Steve. Um, he's constantly yelling and constantly just sort of at the end of his rope uh, and everyone else has to deal with it and sort of hope that he goes away or shuts up or something happens to him but never does. Yeah, yeah, he's constantly at the end of his rope but... You know, he doesn't nothing. have to be. Yeah, yeah, nothing. He it's, came close. It's just, yeah, I, I was very, I was very upset by that. More upset by that than the uh, eye explosion. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, it's I, wanna, I think the review mentions that they're they're kind of similar scenes in that there's not violence in one, but it's it's um, sort of stand-ins for other people coming to a head, really, where it's. Um, yeah. You know, Turner and Dan represent Alan Hurst coming to a together and kind of violence and Hosteller and the Steve difficulties represent something else, but it's not it's not the physical violence that you're going to expect from it. But that's what the fight represents. Um, so, I mean, the fight's the big centerpiece of it. It happens exactly in like the middle of the episode. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts about it? Uh, I was hoping at one point Dan would grab Captain and say, put the fucking glasses on! Because it reminded me a lot of the <laughs> fight from They Live, except sure. also with, with less eye explosion. Less. I really I really liked the fight. I thought it was really great. It was um, <clears throat> probably one of the most realistic fights I've ever seen in a TV show. Yeah. Because it was just yeah. gripping, gripping and rolling and grunting and like... <laughs> you son of a bitch. Small rabbit punches. Yeah, little, little kicks when they're on the ground is my favorite. After they break through like the butcher stand, um, Dan mm-hmm. is laying on Turner and Turner's just kind of giving him like light knees into the stomach. I thought that was funny. Uh, yeah. Milton given Minutehan, Watson, Brown, and Graf three instructions. Number one, I want everything to be completely realistic. I don't want any big fucking cowboy roundhouses flying through plate glass. None of that cliche bullshit. Number two, every time the audience thinks it's going to end, I want it to escalate. I want the audience not to be able to draw their fucking breath for five minutes. And number three, I wanted something I've never seen before. You have three days to make this. And off they <laughs> did. And so it was basically they really just kind of worked together through it, uh, choreographed it. And it was kept secret from even the participants who was going to die at the end of the, at mm. the, end of the fight until the day of shooting. So did you ever think that there was any doubt about who was going to die? Um... I think they filmed yeah. it well enough where I think I think they focus on Al lowering his head towards the end of it when like when Dan is getting uh, drowned in the puddle. And that, that I remember 
originally thinking that was the end of Dan the first time I saw the show. I thought that Turner was going to win because I think narratively it almost makes a little bit more sense for Dan to lose that fight in a more traditional yeah. show, I think. Yeah, I, I actually wasn't thinking it there. I was thinking it when he started smacking his head on the rock, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I thought, you know, especially it's actually a fairly poetic way for Dan to go out given. Yeah, that his, he does uh, that. That's his move. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure. I wasn't. I had a feeling Dan was. I honestly wasn't sure either of them was going to die, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, I I guess I once I saw that they were just like fist fighting, I kind of thought, oh, maybe this isn't going to be a fight to the death. Maybe right. this is just going to be a fight till they both kind of pass out or whatever. Similar to the um, uh, Bullock and Swearingen fight. Right. Yeah. Um, In season two. Yeah. But I, I was. Uh, yeah, I thought it was really good. Um, the I I found it odd from a strategy standpoint, and I say this as someone who's never been in a fight, really, mm -hmm. why Dan would lube up his whole body and then put his shirt back on. Yeah, <laughs> I was wondering that, too. I guess it's just to prevent your clothes from cutting you. Mm -hmm. Maybe is, oh, is the right. reason to do that. I I wasn't I wasn't exactly sure. I would never think to lube myself up before a fight. Anyway, yeah, they so. can't get a grip on you. I guess that's true. Keep your they, shirt on. Keep your shirt on. Then grab a shirt. They they talk about his hair. He's got long hair. Grab that hair real easy. <laughs> I was. That's why I, boxers always put Vaseline on their. Yeah, face. The, well, the, yeah, because that makes sense. Because like the glove hitting you needs to glide off of you as it hits right. you, and it can't just tear your skin that way. I mean, it's the same kind of logic, I guess. It's it's why I have never figured out why pro wrestlers don't fuck up more because they are so lubed up so with like baby oil and uh, self-tanner and shit or whatever the <laughs> hell else they're putting on their bodies to make them look the way that they do. Yeah. I don't know why they just don't Everyone's slip just slipping off, all slip the way down. bounce off into the <laughs> outer space. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of accidents coming down the, uh, the ramp into the, into the ring, I think. Did, um, the 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 fight to me is what I think about while I'm watching it is that like uh, we've come a long way in our combat I suppose like if there was just anyone with a anyone had taken like one judo or jujitsu training course I think would might have been able to actually uh, accomplish something against those two until the I, stick comes out and you get whacked with I, the stick. I think what you're forgetting though is that that is the way ninety percent of people would still fight each other. It is yeah. I, it's very it's very. Yeah, it's it's really. I guess all I'm saying is it's the um, it's the argument or the the proof of like why just like ground grappling is so vital, just because all fights kind of right. end up like this with two guys rolling around on each other. Yeah, very very rarely do fights um, stays a just boxing end up match. as like boxing matches. Yeah, yeah, it goes it goes down quick. Yeah, I like the fight. Um, I like the. I I, th I think it's a it's a neat realistic weird fight that's like super clumsy and silly. Uh, uh, the clumsiness is kind of a deadwood trait to all the fights with the Swearingen and Bullock fight scene in the second season. They fall off the porch, you know, as part of it. Like right, that's just yeah. The, yeah, I love that stuff. That's the extent of it. And and this one is pretty much the same thing with just a little bit more uh, stun work in it. I guess Alan Graff is basically, um, he's a stunt coordinator is his job. He was, uh, Oh, nice. He was on like the 1972 USC undefeated football team for college. I thought he was an <laughs> offensive lineman for that. Yeah. He's a big dude. Uh, um, he's actually, 
I think they film him to be bigger. He's only 6'2". I say only 6'2", but he's he's filmed as if he's supposed to be massive, but he's not that big of an, uh, a guy. That's yeah, I never really thought that he was presented as abnormally huge. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, they got that, Hurst has that line where he's like, you remember that big guy? And he's like, it was big to you. You know, yeah, that kind of yes, thing. Yeah. You know, and I was like, oh, yeah, he's a big dude, but... For you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, he, but he doesn't... He, he's, he's certainly bigger beefy. than Dan Doherty. I, I guess. I guess what's most surprising is that Earl Brown. I, I guess is smaller than I think he is because when they're together, mm. the six foot two uh, actor dwarfs Dan Doherty. Which yeah. so maybe Dan's just not as tall as I think he is. Yeah. The captain. What's his name? Captain Turner. Turner. Turner's a beefy boy. Yes. Yeah. And uh, he's a lineman, to steal yeah. a yeah, steal another line from wrestling. This was the. Perfect encapsulation of big meaty men slapping meat. Yeah. There's <laughs> not lacking for brass. Come scare me in thoroughfare. Star City, Captain. You remember the man's name? Leonard. That was a fight. Not how I remember. As an object lesson to every man watching. For not much fight, it did not end quickly, I suppose is what I'm trying to say. Do you understand me? Yes, I understand. Well, that's what I want to see. That's what they I, go right they through, the, yeah, they go right through, through the, the, the butcher thing. Yeah. He knocks it down. He does not beat him with the leg of I ram. I was expecting. Yeah. yeah I was, you got <laughs> You got to take that and you got to beat the shit out of him with that piece of meat. <laughs> no. They don't. They don't, uh, they don't do to that. But Dan and comes out uh, worse the wear. There's a lot of uh, wondering about whether or not what it was all for. I think that um, one of the more interesting aspects of it is Hurst's reaction to it and his pre-reaction. Um, you can tell me how you feel. Hurst to me seem. This is a, a an interesting thing that they did with Hurst, which is that they, it's the most um, humanizing thing they've done for him which is to have someone that I wouldn't even know if he would consider that person to be a friend dies. Like, mm. I, I don't know if Hearst would consider him a friend before this had all happened, but he feels bad about it. And before the fight happens, he strikes me as clearly concerned that Turner might not win the fight when he's talking to him, when he's sort of, when Turner's doing like calisthenics and like stretching in, in the room mm-hmm. before the fight. Mm-hmm. And Hearst brings up that previous fight that happened. And he said that, it wasn't much of a fight, but you dragged it out to make sure that everyone in town knew what we were saying by doing it. Mm-hmm. But he seems very nervous about it. He doesn't. He doesn't. He's not approaching it with a lot of confidence. And then after Turner dies, Hearst is obviously distressed by it and goes out drinking and gets drunk. Um, and seems like he's trying to make a friend with the uh, the Bella Union bartender, which I think is a funny scene. Yes. Um, but you it's a weird are also thing. big. Yes, I need a big man. <laughs> He's got long hair, though. Hearst likes a more clean-cut look to his uh, to his his gentleman officers. What you, would you think about Hearst's reaction and Dan's reaction? All the reactions, Al and Dan, the father-son relationship that can't admit that they love each other type thing. What would you think of all this? Yeah, I thought the Dan stuff was really was really interesting. Um, uh, it's the the scene with with Al afterwards, where he kind of explains to Johnny the difference between. Um, beating someone in a fair fight and basically sneaking up on yeah, them, yeah, assassinating them. someone. Yeah, 
was was really interesting because you know I always kind of thought it would go be the other way around. Yes, because you know if if you beat someone in a fair fight, I feel like you're you know fighting for your life. Maybe I mean maybe that's part of it is the fact that you yourself are fighting for your life. You're in danger so you. in a way, yeah. yeah, in a way that is not previous. I guess the I guess Al's point is that it, the uh, it's the match point argument, the Woody Allen movie. Like it could have gone either way after the ball yeah. hits the net. Well, I'll tell you, I I think I've said before. I've I've watched a lot of movies, a lot of horror movies, a lot of violent movies. The thing that sticks in my mind in as like one of the most horrifying scenes I've ever watched is Adam Goldberg's death in a par, um Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, the when slow knife. Yeah, oh jeez, oh, like I it, every every few months it just like pops into my head and a shiver <laughs> goes up my spine. It's it's just it's just like it's that kind of thing where it's like you get to a point where it's like it's you or him and you realize oh shit it's not going to be me yeah i'm on the bottom yeah 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 that's yeah and that's clearly what dan is going through and johnny can't understand it uh when they have the scene where uh, dan doesn't want to see the doc or anything like that he doesn't want to uh, see any of the girls um he is just in a place where johnny can't really connect to him al seems to be able to connect to him but the distance between the two is that al won't exactly be the one who's going to go down there and say anything to him about it. It's kind of the the classic masculine thing, I guess, of just being left alone to deal with it, and they're going to deal with it as best they can. You know what he needs to do? He needs to use a woman's breast like a ship's announcement beacon, mm-hmm. like we all do That's- <laughs> in our in our worst moments <laughs> to cheer us all up. Ah, uh, Mr. T, uh, brief uh, idle time. Uh, Harmless, uh, whiling away. I'm considering Khan. Being Swearingen's decided an underling will represent him in certain of our mutual transaction. Would it be my seemly tactic to do likewise? Oh. I'd need to know my man had discipline, appetites, and fucking harness and the like. Well, what this is, sir, uh, yesterday I occasioned to fuck a woman after a considerable period of abstention. And that seems now to have thrown me unawares uh, into a fucking spasm of sex interest, which I fucking pray will be brief. Well, I believe I'll defer enlisting you in this other aspect. Prudent, sir, till I get well on the other fucking side. I thought that's so fucking weird, man. I, I deeply, I deeply connected with the concept of that scene. Not that, not that what was going on, but the. I just thought that was such a great scene about where Khan's like, I had uh, sex for the first time in a long time, and now it's all I can think about. Which I, yeah. I feel is that's just like a that's such a true to life thing that I, I don't think anyone I've never seen another show or anything like bring that up in such a kind of obvious way as that but i thought it was fascinating and i also just like uh powers booth's uh, size reaction to the whole thing he's like i'm gonna look for someone else <laughs> yeah <laughs> i just love how matter-of-factly he tells him he's like Sai, i have to tell you i've i've fucked a woman for the first time after a prolonged period of abstinence he's, he's like i'm overcome with like 
with like sex fever or something like that. He's, he just says the way he says alone. it. I can't remember exactly. He says something like, "I had I had the chance to fuck a woman or something." Yeah, yeah like he that. had the occasion. The occasion. The, the occasion. Yeah. That's what it is. Yes. <laughs> but I, I really like that. Um, that scene, I, I think that that's uh, it's just one of the great Deadwood. Like it's it's nothing for the even the episode or the plot of anything. It's just mm. a throwaway scene that's very funny and very um, very strange. insightful and weird. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to kink shame or anything, but mm-hmm. you know, it's weird. I thought that was the theater actress, but it's not. Oh, it's not. No, I think it's because it's. I think it's one of uh, size horse. Oh, yeah. I guess that would make sense. Yeah, because she's in yeah. size uh, the Bella Union. So, yeah. Um, outside, what of, is he doing? Like what? What it, with the, what, the what talking into her? Breast? Yeah, like he's he's shouting out like ship commands. Yeah, Be, is it because her boobs are big and they float and they're like boats? Little boats? I I don't know. He's but the I the way it's <laughs> like he's it's like he's squeezing it and talking into it like it's a, a microphone. Like it's a, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. Would, you know don't exist at this time. But no. Did would they have the little thing that you could have on kids' playgrounds, which is like it's just a, a you know, like a big uh vuvuzela well, or something that you're talking about. Oh, into? sure. Yeah, I know ships do have those things. I don't know how far those go back. Mm. Um but maybe. Vuvuzelas. Any, anybody anybody who shares this proclivity, please let us know what yeah, you're doing. Let it, let us know Con what Con is up to. But uh, Cy, is this the first episode where Sai has been up and walking around? He mentions uh, uh, that he's like back. Well, on his he feet. goes to the he goes to the meeting at Hearst's. Oh, that's right. Episode. He did that last time. Yeah, so he's yeah. he's been up. This is the first time I, he when he's dealing with Leon. I think it's the first time he says he has a line where he's like, "Now that I'm back on my feet, maybe I should prove that I'm back on business by killing you." Something like right, that. Right. So. Yeah. Um. But yeah, outside outside of that, there's the. Uh, Alma and Ellsworth story, which I really like, which is uh, I think yeah, a really like great, a really great scene that's well acted between the two of them. Which is um, Alma's intoxication is due to the fact that it's well, it's kind of unclear. It's uh, another thing I, I like about Deadwood is that it's sometimes extremely difficult to peg why characters are doing something. It's not that it doesn't make sense, but the show will never state what's going on. Like it's it's kind of literalized in this episode through the Alma thing of getting high, but also more explicitly through when Al cannot understand why Hearst is setting this fight up to happen. Yeah. You know, I really like that stuff too. There's no, and the show never will say anything. So you're kind of just left to wonder why Hearst would do something like that. And, you know, at least the repercussions for Al, which is that Al feels like he's in over his head against Hearst, that he can't understand what what they can't get on the same wavelength and that's kind of makes Al nervous but you're also just not really exposed to why Hearst would do such a thing and it's the same thing with Alma in this as to why she's returned to um laudanum you can make the assumption it's because she's unhappy in her marriage and like she's entering this sort of depressive state and she's a an addict who's getting over it but it's never made explicit yeah I you know I, I think we as I said on a previous episode um I'm a little disappointed that they're doing that with her because it feels fairly reductive. Like it, like we had talked about, it feels like they're kind of setting some of these characters back in certain ways. Yeah, resetting. But them. at the yeah, but at the same time, it is very realistic. 
for her to go. I mean, it's more realistic for her to go back to Laudanum than it is for her to kick Laudanum in the first season and just be done with it. You know? Yeah, yeah. And and they've given her new problems, which are right, yeah. yeah, to to sort yeah, of inspire. Yeah, she just she had a miscarriage, basically, and yep, a loveless marriage. She's yeah, she's yeah. married. I the thing that I was more most interested in is. Abortion, How, I suppose, rather than a miscar- an intentional miscarriage, yeah, I guess, a, a pretty euphemistic. Yeah, yeah. abortion, abortion, which, yes. I like that little touch. Six, six of one. She moves the mirror, which I thought was a great touch. She moves the mirror. In her scene where she is, when she drinks the laudanum before she goes and tries to hit on Ellsworth, mm-hmm. she adjusts the mirror away from the bed because the, be- the mirror was used during the abortion oh, technique. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, but yeah, I... I it it occurred to me watching that the way the scene played out that they really don't give you any indication whether or not they've ever consummated their marriage. Yeah, yeah. And so to see Ellsworth, it, it was a little strange. I I wasn't sure where they were going with it because to see Ellsworth like actively timid about it was kind of weird. Yeah. Um, because there had been no indication that like they had any attempt or or for that matter no attempt at f- a physical relationship yeah um and, but then once once they once they do uh in the hallway there once she does kiss him and she and he sees that she's all fucked up i, I was like that's that's really that's good i like i like the way that because ellsworth is just like <clears throat> i feel like i feel like the thing with ellsworth is alma is predisposed to think that he there's something shitty about him mm-hmm. and he keeps acting very honorably when it comes to her. I'll make some arrangement. To me. For my things and the like. Arrange to collect my things. Will you have me bring the little one back? I'll collect, Sophia. Don't forget. My connection with Ellsworth, I think, is that Ellsworth is, for such a a solid stand-up person as he's kind of proven himself to be, he's basically emasculated at every opportunity. Yes. Like, not intentionally, but like he, you know, he has... He's only in this marriage because of the uh, Bullock's kid, right? So it's right. like he's he's due from that. So he like he's basically you know he's basically cucked from th- that point of view. Like that that's one way of looking at it. It's like he 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 couldn't even impregnate the wife, and he has to like take responsibility for the kid that uh, uh, won't make it around, obviously. But the other thing is that in the loveless marriage, like he's not even she has to get high to fuck him. You know, and like that's right, emasculating. Yeah. It's like he he's yeah. not even desirable enough where she can just do it without the aid of some kind of intoxicant. He's basically like the second half of a business partner that has no say in any of the money because it's not mm-hmm. really his money that he he married into. Um, he takes care of not that there's anything wrong with, but like in the context of the time, he takes care of Sophia a lot, which is not right. traditionally what the male would be doing at this time period. So that I. I really I like that scene because I think it's probably the most emotionally wrenching of the scenes in the episode, and I think that I think the actors just do a really great job. I like Ellsworth being uncomfortable with her straightening his hair. 
Um, yeah. I like his disappointment at the end of it. And I really like his, he has a couple lines that end it, which is that um, he says, will you have me? And then he pauses and then says, pick up Sophia, uh, which is mm-hmm. a nice little play on words. And then he, he, when she says, when Alma says that I'll go do it, he says, don't forget, which is the, uh, I always take as a little bit of a dig about addicts, poor memory when they when it comes to remembering responsibilities for themselves. Gotta yeah, write I like it. 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 Got to write it on the bathroom mirror, like I do at our house. That's right. Tattoo it to Otherwise yourself. I forget. Yeah. Just tattoo it across your chest. Pick up, Sophia. Remember, um, Sammy Jenkins. <laughs> uh, that, at, you you left him at the library. He needs to be picked up. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good trivia question. I wouldn't be able, I wouldn't be able to remember uh, Sammy's name from a moment. I do not know how I pulled that out of thin air. Nice job. I, I think haven't it's because, seen that movie in like twenty years. Well, I mean, because uh, <laughs> the. To the Toblerowski is the Deadwood, mm-hmm. obviously. Oh yeah, maybe maybe it's come up on yeah. the show. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's fun. This is completely unrelated. Yep. Uh, I was just thinking of of names and movies. Uh, you know, in Fight Club, Meatloaf's character his his name is Robert Paulson. Uh, I guess I, yes, yeah. Sure. His name is Robert Paulson. Yep. That's and that's what they say when after he gets killed. Robert Paulson, <laughs> also the name of a famous uh, voiceover actor. Mm-hmm. Who you would probably know from many different things. He's the voice of Pinky and Pinky in the Brain. Yep, uh, and a bunch of other stuff. And I just always thought Narf. it was funny that his his name is Robert Paulson. That was what? a completely unnecessary and probably uninteresting tangent we just went on there. But, What's his nickname in Fight Club? Is it like F- Sweet Tits or something? Uh, s- something Tits. Something tits. Bitch Tits. Bitch Tits. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen Fight Club in a long time. Yeah, I I've been interested to revisit that one because i think i kind of went on the um uh critical roller coaster that a lot of people went on with that movie yeah well it's kind of a pop culture roller coaster of uh reception towards it yeah because i because when i watched it when i was younger i was like this movie is fucking great and then there was a certain point where i hadn't watched it and i was like wait a minute fight club that's I don't know. The, the stuff that that movie is espousing is not exactly something that you should aspire to the way that some people seem to. And then I did watch it again and I was like, oh, this is taking the piss out of all this stuff. This yeah, is it's fine. satirical, right? That's that's yes. always my. Yeah. That's always. That's what I never really stood about the critical flip flopping on that is that it, I, it, yeah. I understand young kids not really getting the satire, but it's definitely satire. You oh, know? yeah. Yeah. I think I think a lot of that stuff is 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 from people who are either coming at it in bad faith or just frankly just haven't watched it. Yeah, while, maybe, yeah. You know? <laughs> maybe. Do you have any movies that I have two that stick out to me that are like that all the time? Um or it's like I guess I would define them as movies that I don't want to hear about your your modern zeitgeisty take on it. Sure. Uh, which is American Beauty is one mm-hmm. and Chasing Amy is the other one. Mm. Those are my two, two- I good. I just I really like both movies and I can understand like the sort of modern criticism of them but I yeah. I think it's like a reach to like I I just don't I don't care I, about the the criticism like I don't care about viewing the movies through that lens of how these sure. things are now perceived. I don't remember honestly either of them well enough to know what the modern critical I can take a guess at chasing Amy based on the content what it's about but uh Yeah. What what briefly? You don't have to go into it. What what is on American Beauty? What's the uh, what's the hot take on American Beauty? Uh, basically, that like 
he is the sort of like stereotypical white guy who doesn't recognize what he's got and is kind of like moping. And he has all the privilege that allows him to like abandon his job and stuff like that, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like he's he's too, he's too much of a normal white male to feel that he's the hero of this situation. And like that, like it's a it's a poor reflection on society at large is basically that he's kind of a whiny guy is like the, the sure. modern criticism of it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, it's been so long since I've seen it. I, I don't honestly remember. I, uh, I, I go. I get into arguments about RoboCop more frequently than mm -hmm. I thought I ever would. Yeah, sure. Um, Suffers from I the think, satire problem. Is, uh, yeah, the does. thing. The thing with a. Uh, I know. I. I know. We've talked about this before, either here or on another show. Show, but the mark of a good satire is something that um, takes a critical eye to a certain thing, but is also simultaneously the thing it is critiquing. Yeah. And RoboCop is just a perfect example of that where, yes, it is a big, dumb sci-fi action movie about a, a guy who turns into a robotic cop. Mm -hmm. But it's also about a lot of other stuff and taking, you know, it's it's very uh, undercutting of that whole genre and whole um, approach. And, yeah. and it, I, I remember, uh, <laughs> if you ever run into to myself or Sean at a convention, you can ask us about this. But when we were at the... Um, apprenticeship uh, 10 years ago uh we had watched some movies and i was like oh we should watch robocop and it did not go over well with anybody and i was very yeah. surprised yeah and there was one person um in the group who left after maybe 15 minutes and was very much not into it and it's you know it's it's not everybody's cup of tea i know that now yeah. but like we got into Arg started arguments about it and i just i was just kind of like i can't have this conversation with you because you didn't watch the movie <laughs> you know you watched sure. 15 minutes of it and then you left we can't have this conversation because you didn't watch the movie minute 16 is when it really kicks into gear and you were not yeah no <laughs> it was right up right up to about the part where the guy gets shot in the dick i think she was out that, that, that that was, that's the ending <laughs> i mean because i could i could see because uh, Murphy getting killed in it must be fairly early too. I don't remember exactly. It is, yeah. yeah. I was I was coming off the. Uh, we had watched Terminator Two, and that went over really big. Yeah. She had never seen that before, and I was like, "Oh well, what's what's the what's the next thing?" Kind of in the same wavelength. And my first thought was Robocop. Of course it was. Yeah, you yeah. might have been watching yeah cooking show, and you're like, you know what, this could, this would go great with Robocop. Right yeah, here. I mean that's my first my first option for everything. <laughs> you got to have the DVD just holstered. Just I I have Alex Murphy parentheses Robocop as my emergency contact on my insurance form with the doctor. <laughs> Amy. Uh, uh, my wife Amy just watched. Um, we watched the first two Terminators recently, and she had oh, never yeah. she had never seen them before. Mm. Um, she really loved them, actually, which was kind of like charming. It's it's just it's rare that you see like a sort of what I would consider to be like a really classic movie that someone has never seen for the first time. Mm. Yeah, uh, but she she enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, Terminator, Terminator Two, Terminator Two especially, but the first two Terminator movies are kind of untouchable. Like they are. Yeah pretty unassailable um as far they work they do every time yeah the the 30 years later 40 years later works every, works it just works yes the first my only the the first one is uh simpler than i remember oh it's yeah it's it's basically like a slasher movie essentially. yeah it's it's really pretty simple it's it's short and yeah. simple and there's not a lot of uh stuff to it the, the second one is definitely obviously a more fulfilling movie and about more but the, they're both still effective um, I guess back to Deadwood. Anyway, sorry for that digression. <laughs> the um, one of my favorite 
uh, schism scenes in this one is when Farnham talks to the gem gang and he talks to Al about it. I guess mm-hmm. I had never really put together or really noticed until just rewatching it here or I'd forgotten about it or something. Th- this is kind of the explanation for why Farnham has been living in the walls of his hotel away from everybody. It's because no one trusts him anymore after he sold mm-hmm. the hotel to Hearst. And I, I, as far as I can remember, this is the first scene that overtly touches on that. And I don't know if I'd say I feel bad for Farnham, but he's the most sympathetic that I've ever seen him at this point is especially when, um, Al tells him that he just won't, he doesn't want his help with anything. He's just like, no, don't bother. Don't bother. And, and Farnham has to leave the office. Uh, I thought it was effective and I thought they were nice little scenes and sequences between the two of them. Hearst organizes violence between his man and Doherty. Does he? Orchestrates combat between them, mutilates me, plants that organizer's body like a flag in the fucking thoroughfare. That last is fresh news. Makes of me and Tolliver, a two-headed beast, to savage what might be healthy born out of the fucking election and gnaw its own privates off ours. Plans keep coming to the cocksucker, but their final sum is this. But for what brings income to him, break what he can, what he can't, Set those parts against themselves to weaken. Scoundrel! Hurst! The wise. What fucking confounds me? What's in his head I cannot fucking find in mine? Don't suppose you talk to the captain? Hails and farewells, but he never replies. Or the cook? The Negress and I are not intimate. All right, E.B. May I ask your plans out? No. Only to further their achievement? No. All right. All right. Yeah, he doesn't want his help, but at the same time, he does talk to him, you know? He does. Nobody else is going up there, and then Farnham goes in, and he actually does... Tell him about is he's the, he's the is Farnham the one that he says like I don't know what Hearst is doing. Yeah, well, or, or he, Al says, is or he comes to out get, right after that, right? Yes, yeah. Everybody, yeah. L L is basically just trying to get any bit of information from Farnham about what's going on over in Hearst's worlds, and Farnham doesn't really know anything uh, because. He says like he hails and says farewell to Captain Turner, but he never says anything back to him. Um, it's just kind of a tragedy like that. But uh, and then yeah, he, Al just gives up on him after a certain point because he can't trust him to do anything. Yeah, the EB stuff is. Uh, I I like that scene because saying that now, I I feel like he hasn't had a ton of interaction with a lot of the characters. It's kind of it's been him and Richardson a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's not friends with them anymore i guess yeah. he has that heartbreaking thing with dan where he's like he's like i thought we were hombres or something <laughs> it's like we never hombres uh ebay and he said oh, forgive me for thinking about you the the way that i thought you felt about me or something yeah outside of the the election he hasn't really crossed over yeah. much with everybody else yeah that's true. um i i like that scene i especially liked it because after his reception from everybody else when he gets there, once he leaves Al's office, he says something like, like I'm glad I could be of such help. Or something yeah, something yeah. that's supposed to make him look cool or look more important <laughs> than the, the people downstairs, which was which was good. But yeah, I mean, you know, he kind of, he did it to himself. He's a slimy yeah, he did. piece of shit. Yeah, yeah. He was sort of forced into selling, but it was his, uh, his own greed at the, the same point. He does... 
he does uh, uh, do right by Bullock. Yes, uh, he when writes Bullock them comes a note. in. Yep. Yeah, he does that thing where he's like saying no, but he's shaking his head yes. Yes. Kind of, yeah. yeah, his his lips say no, but his pen says yes. Um, <laughs> the his lips say no. So one but scene. His pen <laughs> is saying Bella Union. <laughs> he's in the Pen Fifteen Club. Uh, one, I think we're far enough into this now that we can talk about it. So the theater troupe also has the sequence in mm. this episode. Um, if you haven't guessed yet, the theater troupe is the plot line that I've been saying that doesn't do anything in season three. Oh, yeah. And I feel okay. fairly comfortable at this point because we're halfway through the season of saying that now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know what you think about the theater troupe, but I'm, I'm interested to hear it. But it, it, the oh, hopefully, I mean, it's not really spoilers, but like what, what they do for the rest of the season is basically what they've been doing so far. So, oh, so right. I, I'm just... Um, I guess I'm kind of letting you know about that and just maybe putting a little bit of tint on how you're going to view it, but I, I felt that yeah. it's like worth bringing up at this point. Costumes, Countess, will you chair? Yeah. Props and scenery. Chair? Only if you serve a second. I'm so, 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 so sorry. His costume's taken. Are they performing now? Quiet. Civic relations. I'd appoint myself without objection. Will we continue as if all among us are well when one so plainly is not? And what committee, Bellegarde, to address the old man's mortal illness would you have us fucking form? No committee. Committees is the task before us. No business as usual. Business and tasks is what we'll have, just as you are tardy and ginger on your bum for the usual fucking reasons, despite your deep personal grief. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I could kind of go either way on it, frankly, because uh, on the one hand, yes, it doesn't feel like they've got much of a plan here. And, uh, you know, they're introducing a new. Well, they do have a plan. Things. They're slowly putting it together to build like their theater. Sure. Yeah. yeah. It's, no, it's I mean, super I mean, slow. Yeah. I, yeah. I meant like, like uh, the production doesn't seem to have much yeah. of a plan. Yeah. Uh, they introduce these new characters, one of whom is like an invalid and mm-hmm. knows Jack in a way that I don't give a shit about and probably never will. Yeah. The other of whom I'm actually happy to see because I know him. He's uh, the, he gay, the gay Cas- guy, the new gay yeah, guy. He yeah, he plays Eddie Kasperzak in um, the 1990 version of It. Okay. As well as a few <laughs> other things. Famous Bihar movie called uh, Fade to Black. He's very good in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, also, I would watch brian cox read the phone book yeah he's 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 the saving grace of it so it's it's tough to really be super like when you have someone like brian cox anchoring your nonsense i find it much more easy to just kind of bask in than as much as bosch and sarah paulson are good actors yeah i didn't I didn't relish watching them on the screen talking about Mrs. Inrenhausen's past, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I my problem with the theater troupe is that I just don't think that their internal plot is interesting enough. Like Yeah, yeah. What are they up to? Like who They're they're just like they're slowly putting together their theater. You know, it's like they're cool. In, in this one they're 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 basically discussing like all the subcommittees that they're gonna be to be to get their troop up and running, but it's not right. um you know, it was a little better when uh, Jack was talking to like uh, 
Joni about buying the place. There was a little bit of like friction there that he had to work through, but yeah. But but now it just it's really it's very theatery people talking in extremely flowery, milky dialogue to each other about something that I don't find to be thematically interesting. Really, like it, it's it's just I don't feel like you're settled in with those characters in a way that you feel like there's any kind of like sympathy or pathos for them mm. or anything. They don't even really have a problem at this point. So right, yeah. it's, ju- it's just, it's tough when, as you're saying, the only thing you have to ride on is that Brian Cox is delivering a lot of the dialogue and that's very good, but it's ultimately pretty hollow at this point. Yeah. I, uh, I would say it's the most egregious example of Deadwood being a show where you're just watching people hanging out. Yep. Um, Cause like, I don't know about this invalid character, but the like the scene where they're doing the subcommittees is just like a slapstick comedy scene. Yeah, it's a comedy. Yeah, you know, where they're calling out these things, and then the the, the stereotypical gay character shows up, and he yep. can't sit down because his ass hurts and get <laughs> yeah. fucked. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. it's like all right, whatever, sure. Like there's no, it's just it just feels like a goof em up scene. Yes. Yeah. Um, with like a commentary on bureaucracy or or like sure, a, yeah, so sure. it's I. I my read on it is that it's kind of like the milch poking front at the sort of like floweriness of like producer titles and stuff on TV mm-hmm. shows. You know, it's like everyone's got a little role. Everyone's a co-producer or a whatever, or like a, you know, executive uh, staff writer and stuff like that. And it, it, ultimately it's all just a bunch of people doing the same thing and working together to make this TV show. But you, you live and die on these little credits that you're able to get. Hey, I didn't go to gaffer school for nine years to be called Mr. Boy. It's best boy best to you, boy. sir. Make sure you have a um, strong grip. <clears throat> yeah, it's I, I like I wish there was something more to grasp onto, you know, like maybe they're trying to cheat Joni or something, you know, anything. It, it yeah. doesn't really it's I don't. So, OK, I could see it being good if you want to use that word, if the season ends with like the opening of the theater and it, it's some sort of cathartic thing, right. yeah, you know, where it's like there, there's a threshold crossing for the town. Like they've kind of done the past few seasons. Yep. Like then I can be like, okay, sure. They were building sort something. Of like a, and it, a civilizational development. In yeah. Some ways, yeah. So. That's, that's fine. But uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to assume that's probably not what happens. Well, even if it is, you're spending a lot of time, yeah. treading water with them, you know, to get to that point. And I think yes. that's the, it, it does share a lot with the Paulson scene in that it, it shares a little and it's different in a lot of ways. So like the, the Paulson stuff was weird because it was a lot of plotting that was disconnected from anything that you were seeing. And mm-hmm. this one is no plotting, but I like the character interactions more. Although yeah. it's, it's, I guess it, it just really just goes to show that even on a great hangout show like this, you, the characters kind of need something to talk about they can't they can't just sit there and talk about nonsense for five minutes yeah i i i was really thrown off by the invalid character sure because it's just i don't know i feel like it would be more interesting if it was just a troop of weirdo actors who showed up (laughs) instead of this guy who jack has some I don't know if he's the finance connection or something. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm. I'm actually unclear as to what his role is. Jack refers to himself as his producer, um, but I don't know. I don't know what the relationship is. But yeah, I don't know. I, I'm. I'm not expecting much from it. Yeah. Um, any other other sequences? 
here. Uh, uh, Trixie, Trixie I, and Saul have, have a short little scene where she's sneaking through mm-hmm. the wall with each other, but nothing else goes on there. I uh, I I really liked before the fight when Johnny was saying if you know if if things go wrong, hit the deck and I'll blow the guy's head off. Yeah, yeah. I I really I really liked dan's response of things going wrong is not the end of the fucking world yeah where there's not the end of things i i yeah. i don't know why but that was like a really good philosophical moment from dan yeah yeah which obviously plays honor. into the fight yeah the way it does yeah honor means something it comes back to the it's the similar uh kind of idea of like the world ends when you're dead his quote is going wrong is not the end of fucking things yeah um yeah i i like that it's it's he I mean, because obviously it's kind of a, it's showing the thematic passing down of ideology from Al to Dan that way in the father-son relationship. Um, mm. Dan has absorbed a lot from Al and like the, you know, it's, it's even kind of, I really enjoy the scene where when they're trying to figure out what Hearst's game is in the gem after uh, Silas comes back from his meeting with Hearst, you know, it's, I think that's a great little Deadwood scene because it mixes all these different moments. Like it starts with the comedy of them saying, like Silas says, like Hurst says, I guess so. And Swearingen goes, like, it doesn't sound like Hurst to say, I guess so. And then Silas yeah. goes, like, well, I think he was making fun of me because I said it, <laughs> I said it five minutes before that. And then Al can't put together what the game is. But then it gets into more about not being able to figure out the game. And then it's into just like Dan basically opening his heart about like, like he, you can't let him talk to you that way, Dad. Like, like you can't be. If Hearst talks to Swearingen that way, we can't let it stand for that because it just like it looks bad on the family type of argument that he wants to take. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole delaying about whether or not they're going to take action. Bullock comes in and Bullock is not the one who's not going to, you know, he's got he's got a little bit of an errand to run, he says, and then he's going to go back to fucking up Hearst after that. But I just think <laughs> it's a great little scene because it has so many things pouring into it and then coming out in different directions. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. Um, I guess the final thing is... Uh, Bullock arrests Hurst at the end of the episode. The sheriff joins us. Whiskey. Sheriff recently put me on notice he is vigilant of my possible transgressions. Hmm. You sound drunk to me. are you addressing you you sound drunk do i when i say fuck yourself sheriff will you put that down to drunkenness or a high estimate of your athleticism did you just tell me fuck myself i think i did and to shut up i'll quiet you myself you're under arrest. Fuck you and shut up. Or I will shut you up for good. <laughs> Threatening a peace officer. I'm taking you into custody. Don't be stupid. Don't you bullet. be fucking stupid. Ah! Probably a top five five quote uh, for me from this series, which is 
when I say go fuck yourself, shower fool, you put that down to drunkenness or a highest estimate of your own athleticism, <laughs> yeah, which, is, which is a terrific uh, smoking pen line. That's up there with the pickling his prick in the cunt brine of another one, I think. Um, but Hearst is drunk. He's trying to bond with other people. Cy comes in and kind of fucks that up and irritates Hearst. And then Bullock comes in and irritates Hearst even more. Um, any thoughts on this in general from performances to where it ended up to what Bullock did to outcomes, et cetera, et cetera. And Bullock is mad I, because of the the Cornishman got killed trying to unionize. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like that scene previously too when he goes into the, when Bullock goes into the gym and he's like, fuck it, I'm going after Hearst. And they, they, ca- they tell him not to. And he's just like, I have the briefest <laughs> of other things I need to do. See and to then it, I'm going after this fucking guy. Um yeah, I I I was uh I I thought it it was it it hung well together with the scene with Al and Johnny when Johnny's like, "Well, what are we going to do?" and Al's just like, "Well, we're going to see what happens next." Yep. And then seeing uh, him arrest Hurst Al's like, well, there goes three or four of our options, yeah. whatever they might the be. Sh- the sheriff eliminates several of our options, which is a good one. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I, uh, it, I mean, I think it's it's in character. I think it's, it's in character, and I also think it's bringing to the forefront a question that we've kind of batted around to this point, which is why don't why doesn't anybody do something about Hearst? Yeah, like what is what exactly is stopping? Um, Seth from, I mean, you know, he doesn't have a ton of evidence, but he's, he's never really been big on evidence. No, no. Uh, what, what's stopping Seth from doing something? What's stopping Al from doing something? You know, it, this, I, I'm curious to see what the, what the, the uh, turnout from this is. Yeah, from his arrest. But it's two, uh, it's notably, it's two losses for Hearst in a single episode. He loses yeah. Turner and he gets arrested. At the end of big it. losses too. I mean, it's the first. It's really his first loss or yes. first losses. Uh, well, outside of the Alma's claim, yeah, not uh, getting aside, the claim. Yeah. Aside from that, yeah, he's he's uh, he's been. This is the the biggest biggest punch he's taken so far. Yeah, and I mean, just going on traditional narratives, when your antagonist is punched down in the middle of the season, you, he probably is going to punch back uh, yes. in the next couple episodes. And. Yeah. We'll see where all that goes. I, I like that scene. I continue. I really like. I like Tim Oliphant. He's just not a great Bullock, really. Like the this. Yeah, he Bullock's rage needs to be better portrayed. I think than yeah. the way that it's it's done. He goes zero to sixty way too fast. Is, like he's got no. Yeah, I, I think when it's just the rage, he 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 heats up too quickly. Like I, his best stuff was the stuff after their son died. Yes, right. I think. But this stuff where it's just him getting angry, it's just kind of him going. Yeah, it's like qu- quivering you know? lips, kind of. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I, I still haven't come up with a, who a good actor would be to re- to replace this, or how how you should more normally play it. But I, I think he just he has to come. Well, I I don't know. Is this true? Does Bullock have to, or would it be better if Bullock came across more? confident in what he was doing even if he was equally as unhinged and like emotionally prone to do things the way that he does it i because i i know thematically it kind of fits like bullock getting all hot and bothered about this and pulling a gun on hearst is supposed to represent bullock's sort of like flighty raginess of not thinking through things effectively 
So mm-hmm. it's not like I, I think it's a bad look, but I, I wish he was less obvious. Like his tells are just terrible. Yeah. There's, there's no there's no duplicity to him whatsoever, which is maybe intentional. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I think you'd need someone who can who can do more with the eyes. Yeah, um, a little bit a little bit more silent acting. Um, because yeah, I think I think he just he gives it away as you're saying he gives it away too too easily. Yeah, uh, but I mean, who doesn't in Deadwood, right, guys? No, that's right, that's right. There's a whole industry, a whole cottage industry built around it. But it hurt. It, it's and you know that's why he's so over his head against someone like Hurst, who even though Oliphant technically or Bullock technically wins this one, and Hurst is a little bit embarrassed by the end of it. It's um, it's a the only reason it's happened is because of Bullock's position. Really, there, it's like his like um, sheriff position. There's no. Mm. There was no overthinking or like outdoing or outmaneuvering Hurst there. It, it was really just like, it was like a petty cop giving you a ticket about some bullshit that yeah. he would not normally care unless, you know, the only reason he cares is because he's having a bad day, basically. And you unfortunately run into his path. Yeah, I think you need someone who can do more um, jawbone acting. Yep. Uh, <laughs> little little I, jaw clenching. Yeah, I remember. Um, I think I was watching the Aviator, the the uh, DiCaprio, DiCaprio movie. Yep. And there's a scene. I think it's that one. It's it, regardless of the movie. It's DiCaprio where he's in court. I think, and it's going very poorly. And he's not saying anything, but you can see his temples flaring <laughs> from the from the grinding of his teeth. And yeah. I was like, that's that's pretty good. That's a little unfair. It seems like cheating, but it's still it gets the point across pretty well. <laughs> Yeah, Bullock needs a little bit more uh, jawbone workouts. I think. Still like the scene. Um, I and again, I, I have to focus on. I just I like Hurst trying to make a friend with somebody in his his moment of uh, disappointment. But yeah, I mean, he's got nobody else, right? It's, it's I think when you're saying is is uh, Captain Turner Turner is Captain Turner his friend? It's like it kind of. I think Hurst is the kind of guy where even if it's even if they're not like hanging out together, it's that's all he's got. Yeah, he does. He right? can't. He, he Hurst can't connect with people. So the her uh, yeah, and it's basically it's made explicit through what Hurst said before. It's like he he can hang out with you know race, racial slurs for people, or he can hang out with whites who obey his commands. Basically, and Turner yeah. fits that to a T. So yeah, that's the explanation. I wish. I wish when he was when he was talking to the bartender whose name what's the bartender's name? Do you remember? That he Jack talks Young. To Jack, Jack Young. I wish when he was talking to Jack, he'd said, Jack, that's a mighty fine shirt you got there. And Jack said, He's like, Well, <laughs> I don't really care about the design. All I care about is the color. And then they cut back to Hearst and he's <laughs> he like, just smiles. <laughs> just this <laughs> a freeze frame and then the credits roll. I really liked uh, Steve's signing bank documents shirt. He he was uh, yes. he was very happy yeah. to be doing that. Yeah. <laughs> At least he apologized for breaking the pen. There's a uh, yeah he, he broke <laughs> broke the nib. Um, Bullock firing a gun in the middle without warning anybody seemed like it would be potentially a bad <laughs> idea, but he he did it and no one stopped him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other funny thing about the bank is I've never heard the term specie. I assume that's what gold the word for gold because oh, they say yeah. specie or currency. But he took yeah. gold. Yeah. Why would you, you take know, gold over currency? Uh, that's a good question. Maybe because it's, is it, are, are they at a point where it, does America have a, a national currency yet? 
Oh, I guess this is true when they're talking about the banking. Apparently, this is all historically, I guess. I don't I don't know enough to speak about it uh, fluently, but like the show references this too. Apparently, this was during an era of huge banking crises in the eastern seaboard. And that's what that's what Alma's uh, when she's sort of highly explaining to Merrick about like all the banks that are failing. And out here, mm. our local bank is backed by gold. I guess at this point, you would probably want to just take the gold because it's guaranteed to be worth value yeah, at some point yeah. yeah too many people shorting the manure stocks that's right yeah how did how did how did they do stocks back then i have no idea how that was would, no, no I, clue. I feel like you need a computer to do that but apparently not but you yeah you just show up on the floor and you scream like you're at a Taiwanese kickboxing. I know you, you wave your papers in the air and, and something will happen, but I, I've I have always no wondered, idea how they did that. Anytime I see any, like whether it's a stock thing or especially those movies where there's a fight scene in like a pit in Saigon yep. or whatever, right. how does anybody keep track of anything? I know. They, They're just <laughs> yelling stuff and throwing money at the one guy who's got like a, a notebook. Is he really t- keeping track of what you just gave him? So you, when your guy gets like punched in the face, with the glass stuck to the other guy's glove and yep. loses, you're like, okay, you owe me $1,400. No. <laughs> I wrote it down. It's right here. That's that's true. That does seem to, the, particularly the Muay Thai fight scenes, just seem to be people waving dollar bills in the air and no one's taking yeah. any kind of record keeping about what's it going looks on. great. It looks, it looks great, great on film. Yeah. Yes. I don't know how practically it works, though. Yeah. All the, all the, cut out scenes of those guys just waiting in line at the bookie yeah. office as they take their bets <laughs> and then go back to the high energy. Well, we'll be doing, I think we're probably going to do the first episode of luck as our breathing room before we do the movie again. So, we'll, Oh, interesting. We'll probably do the first episode of luck, okay. which is the Michael Mann and Milch. Oh, HBO I didn't show. realize that was man and Milch. Yeah, it's man and Milch. Oh boy. Oh boy, the testosterone. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's pure. And that's what I mean when it's Ooh. just going to be money waving in the air. And then we'll probably yeah, do. That's, isn't that famously the show they had to cancel because too many horses yeah, died? Yeah, too many horses died. <laughs> and apparently those two hated each other too, Milton and Man. So not surprising. Yeah. So uh, they seem like a bad pair because Man is supposed to be very regimented and technical, and Milch just flies by yeah. the seat of his pants. So I, I can't imagine it worked out well. Yeah. Uh, and then we'll do John from Cincinnati, I think. And then we'll do the Hitman movie, uh, which Olaf had to do. And then we'll do the Deadwood movie. Um, what was the We're not going to do uh, Die, Die, Live Free or Die Hard, where he plays the villain? No, because he took the Hitman movie specifically after Deadwood was canceled to pay for his oh, house, really? which he had just bought. Oh, yeah, so he, he bought a house in season three of Deadwood, and then they canceled the show, and he needed to make some money. So he did Dead, uh, Hitman. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting, interesting. Uh, what was my final point here? Did I have a final point about, we talked about Hearst, talked about the gold, talked about, no, I guess that's it. Do you have anything else you want to say? Or is that the end of Two-Headed Beast? Uh, I think that's it. I think we covered pretty much everything. Final thoughts overall? Good stuff. Yeah, I like this one. Yeah, I like this one too. I like the third season. I'm being reminded episode by episode that I, yeah, I do like the third season. I for having heard that the third season isn't very good, I again, I think it's a matter of whether or not you are on board with what the show has turned into. Yeah. Cuz I I don't think it's any less good, but I just think it is it is just more of a the, the meandering nature of it is is kind of baked into the concept at this point. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think looking back on it, season two is probably my least favorite season. Um, I think that they 
I think that they were smart to sort of move away from the overly plottiness that season two kind of represents to me, which is like the Yankton politics and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still kind of here in the third season, but it's not as the scenes aren't just two people sitting at a table talking about that stuff. And like the dialogue's great and everything in the second season. I like Walcott and things, but I, I don't think it has the energy of the first and the third seasons. Um, and I like that energy. So. Yeah. I'll, I mean, I didn't even immediately pick up that the, the actor plot was the, the dead end thing yeah. because I, I don't think it stands out as much as say the Isrenhausen stuff does. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because I maybe it's all, it's I, again, all 2020 I think it's, hindsight to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah and I, I also I, again I think it's the Brian Cox yeah. factor of it, totally, where it's yeah. like, yeah, I don't know what he's saying, but it sounds great. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I I brought it up mostly because this was the first episode where I really like I didn't feel that they kicked the ball forward at all in what they were doing. You know, the other one he yes, bought the house yeah. and stuff, and he right. met somebody, yeah. but this one it's just like let's hang out and talk to each other. Well, you know, you can't you can't build a a business unless you figure out who's going to take on what roles. It's yep. very important. Yeah. The board, do they call it a bordello? They do, right? I think they call it a bordello. The, the eye lines must be atrocious. That was a good joke. That was a good joke. I like that one. Thanks everybody for listening to this is something pretty. It's a podcast about Deadwood. We just talked about a two headed beast. You can support the show at patreon.com slash the Penske file. All the shows are supported at patreon.com slash the Penske file. If you've made it to this point in this, the, the podcast series, and we're done. Maybe we're even done. We're in the future and all the episodes are out and you've listened to them. You can still go to Patreon, sign up for a month, leave a couple bucks, and you can mosey on out of there. Or you can stick around to get more content too, whatever you're up to. Clay, do you have anything you want to say? Uh, check out Rotten Heart Picture Show. We're covering video nasties on Patreon. Uh, August was Toby Hooper's The Fun House. September is going to be uh, a movie I forget. Hmm. Uh, it's possibly Lucio Fulci's zombie, but I don't think that's it. I can't remember what it is. <laughs> There's a lot um, of them. And also, we just finished season two of Batman Beyond on Badass, so we're going to be doing um, Return of the Joker pretty soon. And uh, the comic book I've been working on for the last six months to a year, Batman White Knight presents Return of... Not Return of the Joker. A Generation Joker is on the shelves. Issue five is out now ish mm-hmm. which features my uh the first cover i've ever drawn for dc comics so that's pretty cool so yep, check that out, out if you could find it it's got and, a horse on uh, it yeah. if you're into deadwood it's got a horse it on it It does it has a horse on it and a car so regardless of your preference <laughs> yeah, for uh, era <laughs> mode of travel it's got them both uh what's the hardest animal to draw horses are pretty tough yeah. horses are um weird looking animals yeah, they, they work in, much like God, horses work in mysterious ways. Mm-hmm. Horse walks into a bar, bartender says, why the long face? And that's what you got to draw. Classic, classic. I would say sea urchin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have no idea. That might actually be super easy. Just a bunch of spikes uh, sticking out of something. Um, what, what the hell else would be a weird thing? Do you animal? see that weird thing that they just discovered at like the bottom of the one golden of those? egg? Is that what it's called? It was like a weird, it looked like a kite. Oh, There's no. this weird, like, gloopy jellyfish-looking thing with a big, like, String? proboscis oh, that, okay. that, like, went, that extended down to the bottom of the... And it was, like, it was like 450 miles down in one of the trenches. Not the Mariana Trench, but like mm-hmm. one of those big trenches. Oh, no, I didn't and, see it. Yeah. I saw, I saw it one. pretty weird. They found a golden egg, and they weren't sure where it, well, like what animal came from it, but it was like a little gold oh. egg on the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. Cool. 
So there's there's what happened? stuff out there. What happened? Did one of Gwyneth Paltrow's ships go down? <laughs> we can only hope. Guys, is that, is, that still a, <laughs> is that still a contemporary reference to make? I don't know. What, I don't know what's going on with that. In 1876, it certainly was. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, I just felt my throat give out, so I think we're done. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Patreon.com slash the Penske file. This is something pretty. We are going to be back with the next episode, which, oh, no, I put the book down. I have to say it now that I've said it. Hold on. The book is right here. The next episode is called A Rich Find. So that's easy. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We will see you next time. What? Hello. You fucking work at the bank. I do now. Not a noble hello at opening? And regal fucking look by it closing up a shop? I'm at the hardware store all day, Trixie. I'll switch with you. Bank's a Jew's proper province anyways, along with the adult self-deceived. Our depositors? The bank's founder and president, chief officer as well of airheaded smugness and headlong plunges unawares into the fucking abyss. I, I don't understand. You wouldn't. You're too fucking healthy-minded. You'll sit here waiting for me to materialize from a piece of fucking furniture and think the world is normal. Do you want to get fucked or not? Please.